0: morning church. Let's pray. Father, it is it's been a wonderful thing already this morning to to be with the saints and to study the word in the first hour to worship You together in this second hour, to sing things, true things with which our souls agree, and it is true, Lord, that it is well with our souls, and many of us this morning are, are bringing with us various lots, and we testify together no matter where we find ourselves and in what situation we find ourselves, it is well with our souls because of what you've done for us in Christ. He has regarded our helpless estates and he has shed his blood for our souls and for that reason it is well with us. We thank you that that is true. And so we are eager to open our Bibles together and to study them. Father, of course, you know that We are going to consider together a passage of Scripture that's difficult to understand. And some of us may find ourselves in situations in life where we feel as if we really cannot afford a Sunday simply looking at esoteric things, simply theological game-playing looking at things that perhaps don't pertain to our everyday life. So we pray, Lord, that uh, as we look at this passage, that you would help us to understand what it means to us. And that you would speak to us, that you would help us, that you would help us not only to understand this word, but that you would help us to understand how to obey, how to love you more, how to walk in light of the truth, most importantly, how to, to live lives that say we believe the gospel in this generation and in generations to come. We need your help in all of these things. We ask for it with great confidence because of who you are. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus chapter 12, as you're finding your place there, let's stand once again. And we'll read these few verses, just eight verses this morning. Leviticus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstruation she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised, then she shall continue for thirty-three days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy. "...nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation. And she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for sixty-six days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering." And a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. You may be seated. I think it's okay to admit this is an odd chapter. It's an odd chapter in the midst of odd chapters. Chapter 11 was about clean and unclean animals. Chapters 13 and 14 are about leprous diseases, how to identify them how to identify them in persons and in homes and what to do about them. Chapter 15 is about male and female discharges, bodily discharges, what to do about those. We have have some interesting hoeing ahead, we might say. This chapter is particularly odd because it seems to take something that is already hard and makes it harder. Raising children is hard. Anyone who has done it knows these people, these little people happen, and by God's design you love them intensely, and that intense love is complicated by the fact that you are a sinner and they are sinners. Leviticus 12 indicates that on the front end of that expedition there's this lengthy time of ritual uncleanness. At just the moment when an Israelite woman needs support the most, she is separated from others and separated from the sanctuary. She's separated from everyone, including the Lord. It's notoriously difficult to understand. and In fact, it's almost funny to read commentaries on this passage because commentators are like, we don't know. There's lots of questions and not a whole lot of answers. We don't know. Don't know what to tell you. And uh, here's some transparency for you. I'm not super confident myself. But here's the big idea in my view. This This is what I believe is being communicated big picture. This chapter is God's way of using child rearing to picture our need for the gospel. This chapter is God's way of using child rearing to picture our need for the gospel. In the Old Testament, our need for the gospel comes in types and shadows. It doesn't come to us as clearly as in the New Testament. But the idea is that as we set out to do what God has wired us to do, which includes making little humans and raising them to adulthood, we need to know that sin is going to touch every part of that process, and we desperately need the redemption of Christ to touch every part of that process. So that's where we're going this morning. I don't have time to recap where we've been throughout Leviticus. If you have missed that train with us, just know that those sermons are are online and you can catch up that way. But I will say this, that Leviticus turns our attention to the central reality of human existence, which is that we were created for fellowship with God. God has wired us in such a way from the very beginning that we can only flourish as we abide in fellowship with Him. Now, we have a problem as human beings in that from the very beginning we have rejected Him, and so Leviticus also answers the central question of human history, which is, how can I, a sinner, approach a holy God so that I can abide with Him? And so what we're looking at in these middle chapters is the revelation that sin is a bigger problem than just the things that we do. And death is not just something outside of us, but it's a problem that's internal to us. So what we have here in, in Leviticus 12, we just we're to walk through it very quickly. Again, you can just scan through it as I, as I talk through it. Verses 1 through 5 describe the uncleanness that results from childbirth. First of all, the Lord talks about the birth of a male, then the birth of a female. And remember that if we we were to look at the, the camp of Israel, we would see that it's laid out to depict holiness, a spectrum of holiness in the center moving out toward uncleanness and death on the outside. There's holiness and life in the center, uncleanness and death on the outside. And in the center of the camp is the holy, where God is in the tabernacle. You must be holy in order to be with Him. Outside of the tabernacle, but still inside the camp is the clean. You must be clean to be inside the camp of Israel. Outside the camp is everything that is unclean. If you are not clean, you cannot be in the camp, and you certainly cannot approach the tabernacle or you will die. That's the significance of the word unclean here in chapter 12. If a woman bears a son, she is unclean for seven days. And after those seven days, she's technically clean, but she remains separated for an additional 33 days. During that total of 40 days, she's separated from everything that's holy. She can't come to the tabernacle, can't touch holy things. If she bears a female, that time is doubled. And I know you want to know why. Everybody wants to know why. To be honest with you, nobody knows why. I've got an idea. I'm happy to share it. I'm not going to share it in this sermon because it is conjecture. But if you want to know afterwards, come and see me. At the end of the period of separation, whether it's 40 days for a boy or 80 days for a girl, verses 6 through 8 tell us there is a provision for cleansing. She brings a burnt offering and a sin offering, and we've seen in the past, and we'll see in the future what these are for. The sin offering makes atonement. The burnt offering, or as we've called it, the ascension offering, expresses consecration to God. It says, I belong to you and with you. Now, if she's poor, the text indicates that there is an alternate, less expensive offering that can be brought. This text raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it? All kinds of questions. Why would childbirth lead to uncleanness? Childbirth is, is already hard enough, right? This separation may just seem to cast a huge cloud over what might otherwise have been a joyful occasion. And again, numerous commentators numerous commentators have noted that the text repeatedly indicates that it's, it's not childbirth per se that causes the uncleanness, but it's the loss of blood. That makes her unclean, similar to the blood of her cycle. Verse 7 notes that at the end of the time of her separation, she shall be clean from the flow of her blood is another way of, of rendering this. And you may remember from the last time that we were in Leviticus that we're dealing with this, this theme In Leviticus, and you can even see it in the way that the camp is set up, there's a spectrum from perfect life in God in the center to absolute death outside the camp. God is associated with life, and any degree of unhealth all the way to death is associated with separation from God. That was the rationale, if you'll remember, for the criteria for distinguishing between clean and unclean animals in chapter 11. And so here in chapter twelve and in later chapters, many commentators hold that the loss of blood or other bodily fluids represents a state of compromised physical health. So this person, like the, the woman who's just given childbirth, and then and then in later chapters, people who have lost some kind of bodily fluid, that person isn't at a hundred percent. They are somewhere on that spectrum from life to death. They're somewhere on that spectrum other than perfect life, and that makes them ceremonially unclean, unable to enter God's presence, who is perfect life. Now, as the woman recovers, as she recovers from that loss of blood, she returns to a place of health, and therefore she returns to ceremonial cleanness and life. That's how some have explained this, and I think that that makes a lot of sense. But why does she need to make a sin offer? Why does she need to make an ascension offering after her time of separation? That's a key question in my view. It's a question that warrants investigation. It's a question that points to deeper spiritual realities. And I would encourage you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 as we gather our first point this morning, which is that there is a creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Genesis chapter 1 teaches, among other things, that there is a creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. There's a, there's a reason that I'm bringing this up, which I'll, I'll make clear as we move along. A portion of Genesis 1 was read for us this morning. I'm going to read it again to you. Genesis 1.26 reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So let us make man in our image and let them have dominion over the animal kingdom. It seems that a functional component of the image of God in man is our exercising dominion over creation. A way that we express God's image is by developing and managing His creation. Now, the world is really big. That's, that's, a, that's too big a job for one man and one woman. They can't do it alone. So, look at verse 28, Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, you see what the Lord has done. In order that such a huge job could be accomplished, God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, there, there are a couple of things for us to take with us then as it pertains to the passage that we're studying this morning. The first of those is that it cannot be a bad thing, it cannot be a sinful thing to have children. We might, if we, if we were to isolate Leviticus chapter 12, we might wrongly reduce or deduce from, from Leviticus 12, well, maybe it's, it, it's sinful to have children. Maybe it's a curse of some kind. Every time a woman has a child, she's ceremonially unclean, and she has to offer a sin offering. So maybe there's something wrong with this. I would say, no, it's a command to be fruitful and multiply. It's a command to have children. In fact, it's the very first command given to man and woman in the Bible for that reason, I'd say that the sin offering that's required in Leviticus 12 must be addressing something other than the simple act of having a child. Listen closely again to how Moses has worded verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. He blessed them and, and gave them this command. It's a blessing to be given this command. And we see repeatedly in Scripture that, in scripture, that Children are a blessing. Psalm one twenty seven verses three through five is a great example of this. It reads, "Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. That is, they're a great inheritance from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them." On the other hand, as we as we continue through the narrative in Scripture, we find multiple occasions where it's considered a horror to be barren. So it's a wonderful thing to have children. It's a blessed thing to have children. It's, it's a horrible thing to not have children, to not be able to have children. And we see, we see people in Scripture even resorting to sinful things so that they might have children. So desirable is it to have children. Further, we should understand from verse 128, Genesis 128, that it is incumbent upon married couples who can to have children. So those, those who can have children should have children. And some might say, well, haven't we multiplied and filled the earth yet? Well, certainly we have, but you may have noticed that people die. People die. And so other people need to be born in order for the earth to, to continue to remain filled with image bearers. So we need to keep being fruitful and multiplying. Now, that's an important thing for us to understand in order to rightly interpret Leviticus chapter 12. There's a biblical mandate to be fruitful and multiply. But what about the fall? Is there something about, about the fall that, that may have something to do with what we read in Leviticus 12? I, I think probably there is. In Genesis 3, we find that a consequence of the fall is toil in childbearing. That's the, second, that's the second step in your notes. A consequence of the fall is toil in childbearing. Now, you might turn over to chapter 3. We're going we're to look at a few verses there. We don't have time to go through this whole story. Likely you're familiar with a lot of it. I'm picking up a little bit here in chapter 2, but God sets man in the garden to keep it and to tend it the garden's likely intended to be the hub from which mankind would spread and fill the earth and subdue it there was a single dietary restriction in the context of tremendous freedom but the man and the woman could not abide that one dietary restriction and under the temptation of the serpent they rebelled and that rebellion brought consequences that we read about beginning in Genesis chapter 3 Verse 14. So look there with me. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And of course the chapter ends with their banishment from the garden. So what's happened here? To to put it all just in one little ball here, everything that man needs to do in order to image God, everything that he needs to do in order to image God has been affected by his sin. His work, his relationships, and his reproduction. All of it has been affected by sin. Because man has rejected God, he's going to be functioning as an image bearer, but he's going to be doing it outside the presence of God. So Everything is going to be harder. Bearing children, going to be painful. Marital relationships, going to be difficult. Working the ground is going to be painful. All the meaningful components of human existence, that is, image bearing, all of it is going to serve as a constant reminder of man's rebellion against God. Now, you may have noticed as, as, as we read through those verses that the word pain is used in verse. 16 and verse second, 17. Look, look, look there again. Verse 16, verse 17, verse pain is used as the Lord is, is speaking to the woman and to the man. In pain you shall bring forth children. In pain you shall eat of the, the, the fruit of the ground. Now, we tend to understand that same word. It's the same, it's the same original word. We tend to, to understand that word differently in those two verses. We tend to think, well, it's physical pain in verse 16. God's going to make childbirth physically painful. It was going to be a breeze. You wouldn't even feel it. But now it's going to be awful. And in verse 17, pertaining to working the ground, it means something like anxious toil and hardship, not physical pain. I suggest the word means anxious toil and hardship in both places. Because. Moses has chosen that word and he's used it in close proximity together for a reason. In both verses, it means anxious toil and hardship. And I'd say that because the word that's translated childbearing connotes not just childbearing, but child rearing. And multiple commentaries go this way. Those who have children might say that just, just as, as, as physically painful as childbirth is. In a sense, that's the easy part. That's, that's the easy part because after that, and it's, it's, it's horrible on the front end, but, but, but after that is, is when the hard part starts because that, that's when you have a sinner being raised by sinners. And, and it's hard. And it is quite analogous to Adam arduously day after day seeking to draw edible plants out of ground that is prone to bring forth thorns and thistles. In pain you shall bring forth fruit from the ground. In pain you shall bring forth children. Moses uses similar language in the two verses because it's a similar situation. Lifelong anxious toil and Hardship. And I won't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many can identify with both of those. And, and think about that in the context of Genesis 2. So step, step before, before that moment that the serpent came into the, into the garden and tempted, tempted the man and the woman. Think about how things might have been child-rearing might have been the hallmark commercial that we all dreamed it would be. Perfectly behaved, healthy kids being taken care of by by us, making all the right parenting decisions And, and loving them perfectly, never needing to seek their forgiveness because we never sinned against them. Imaging God in front of them for 18 years until right on time they leave the nest, poised to then follow our lead by making perfect decisions of their own. While we watch with zero anxiety until they deliver our grandchildren, whom we then enjoy also with zero anxiety. That's Genesis 2. That that is not life after Genesis 3, as as we all know, right? The, the, The whole point of Genesis 3 is that things can't be perfect for humans outside of fellowship with God. Trouble is the norm. Anxious toil and difficulty is the norm. Perfection is the pipe dream. And by God's kindness, of course, we all know that there's joy along the way, but it is mixed with a lot of anxious, toil, and hardship. In other words, you're a sinner and, and your life is, is, is going to be touched by sin, including the most important aspects of life, including child rearing. And we, we find that as we read Genesis, don't we? We see that. We see sinners raising sinners and all of the anxious toil and hardship that comes from that. But in the midst of delivering that bad news in Genesis 3, God gave the good news. And it's so easy to read right over it. But the Lord said that a seed would come from the woman to crush the head of the serpent. Right? Right? In other words, even though child rearing is going to be difficult, listen to this, even though child rearing is going to be difficult, eventually through child rearing the human race is going to be saved by God. You've got to keep rearing children because eventually there's going to come one that's going to make everything right. A particular child, a particular seed, a particular offspring is going to come and He's going to save us. He's going to save us from all of it and make everything right. And and I believe that based upon what we read in Genesis 4, Eve starts looking for that seed right away. And just a few generations later, it seems that Lamech anticipates that possibly Noah is this seed. Maybe Noah is the one that's going to save us from this anxious toil that we have as we work the ground. They're looking for this seed as they go along. Genesis 3 speaks to the first couple, speaks to all couples. There is going to be trouble, but there is hope. And I would suggest that the childbirth law and the other cleanliness laws that we find following chapter 12 in Leviticus remind us of our need for purification. The childbirth and other cleanliness laws remind us of our need for purification. So you can turn back over to Leviticus chapter 12 now. God here in Leviticus 12, through the law, is using childbearing to expose the need for the gospel. Has this woman sinned by having a child? Certainly not. She and her husband are commanded to be fruitful and multiply. In the very first commandment recorded in the Scriptures... But my view is that the law uses the occasion of a birth to point back to Genesis 3. I just I cannot imagine that an Israelite woman in this situation wouldn't think of Genesis 3. I'm a, mod, I'm a modern day Gentile man and I can't see a weed in my front yard without thinking of Genesis 3. I can't imagine that a, a, an Israelite woman Bearing a child and then being separated from God wouldn't think of Genesis 3. I can't imagine that being possible. I think think this is set up to do that. I think she has a baby. She is separated from the sanctuary. And she automatically thinks Eve, Eden, cast out of the garden. That's what this is set up to do. And it communicates three points. First of all, you have a problem that is going to manifest itself in this family relationship. You haven't sinned by having a child, but you're a sinner in that you descend from sinners and you've just given birth to a sinner. And one of the consequences of the fall is toil in child rearing as a manifestation of mankind's separation from God. It's the first thing. There's a problem here, and let's not forget it. Let's, let's use this occasion of bringing a person into the world to be reminded of Genesis 3. Second, there is hope. We have an offering of approach here in Genesis 12 and an offering of abiding. Now, th- think about the fact that you know, we, we, we may be tempted to think, well, she's, she's, she's pushed away from the sanctuary. I, 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 my view is that she is pushed away from the sanctuary so that she can be brought back. The whole point is not the separation, but that there is an offering made here. It is the reminder of hope. There's the offering of approach, there's a sin offering given by which atonement is made, and there's an offering of abiding, that's the offering of ascension, by which she is expressing to the Lord, I belong to you and with you. It's an expression of hope. That's what these that's what these offerings are all about. And it's and it, and it is not, in my view, this is my view. It is not that she is she is saying I've sinned by having a child, but she is saying, I'm in Adam, I'm in Eve, I'm recognizing this whole problem, and I'm recognizing I need a Savior. I, I need God to do something about me. I need God to do something about this child. I need God to do something about everything in order to rescue me from what sin has done to me and to all mankind a third thing that this this is intended to communicate is that the ultimate fix is yet future the ultimate fix is yet future we do have these two offerings which which enable her to come back into back into the camp and back into contact with the the sanctuary, but the ultimate fix is yet future. There are a couple of reasons to say this. First of all, if she has a moment of clarity, if she is, 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 has any, any moment of honest self-reflection with the past, she knows these, these sacrifices, they are not going to change her. She, she'll be able to move freely in the camp. She'll be able to go to the sanctuary. But her heart won't be changed. Neither will her child's. Because she has generations of human beings before her to demonstrate that to her. She has her own experience. She knows these sacrifices are not going to change me. What's needful is a solution that addresses death from the inside out and not the outside in. And a second indication that the ultimate fix is coming... is that written into this passage is that if she has a boy on the eighth day, he'll need to be circumcised. We don't have time to go through a full exposition of the covenants and all of their relationship, but that that little piece here is intended to remind the people of promises, piled on promises, piled on promises, all of which... If you trace them back, you pull that thread, just pull that thread and keep pulling it back, it goes back to Genesis 3.15. Because what, what what ultimately is the purpose of circumcision? It is the marking of the organ of reproduction which reminds the people that there is a seed coming who is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And every time a male is circumcised in Israel, It is a reminder, we are the people through whom that singular seed is going to come and set all things right. And I'm inclined to say that while we may be tempted to regard this whole thing as a cloud over the birth of the child, what God has intended by putting this this law in the law of Moses, He intends it to point toward hope. You, you have a problem with God that is not unique to you. It's going to manifest itself in the closest of family relationships, including your raising of children. However, there is hope coming in the seed of Genesis 3.15. and In a sense, though separated for a time, the woman is, is, is moved to think of the hope promised in the garden, the hope that all things will be made right including the difficulty, the anxious toil and pain of child-rearing. Now, we are so blessed to be partakers of a different covenant and to have access to the substance of which these things are but a shadow. And so let's talk then about the, the final step in understanding all of these things, and that is this. Christ was born under the law to redeem those who believe. Christ was born under the law to redeem those who believe. And I would invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. Luke two twenty one reads this way. And at the end of eight days, this is eight days after the Lord Jesus' birth, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification... According to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now that little quotation there is from Exodus 13. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That is from Leviticus 12. Continuing. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled Old Testament threads come together right here and w- w- I mean we could be here for days tracing all of these things out so much to say don't have time Mary like countless women of Israel before her has now waited through her time of impurity so she waits through the 8 days Jesus is circumcised, waits through the additional 33 days and it's now 40 days after Jesus' birth and she brings the appropriate Leviticus 2 offering for cleansing. Perhaps what she does not clearly understand is that she has also brought with her the Genesis 3 promised seed of the woman. The ultimate offering, not just for her cleansing, but for all those who will trust in Him. So, having brought with her The Genesis 3 seed of the woman. Will she then escape the pain of child rearing? No. Because Simeon says a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Which hints not only to the fact that that she will have anxious toil and hardship in raising this, this child, but also hints that the salvation that will come through Jesus will come through his suffering because Simeon says a sword will pierce through your own soul also indicating that he is going to suffer. At any rate, Mary, perhaps more than any parent ever, she is going to know the anxious toil of parenting as she watches the trajectory of his life and his pathway towards suffering. Simeon also calls Jesus... God's salvation. And as Pastor Jason has pointed out to us this morning through the scripture that he read from Galatians 4, Jesus is not just God's salvation, he is also God's own son. Galatians 4 4 and 5 reads But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. A couple of things to note about that. First of all, Jesus came to fulfill the law, to obey the law where mankind Would not and did not, where Adam and Eve and everyone since them rebelled against God, Christ fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law so that His righteousness could be credited to the account of those who believe and also so that He could be qualified to go and suffer in their place on the cross. This suffering that that Simeon alludes to here in these verses. Secondly, again, God sends His own son to do this. How beautiful that the Holy Spirit records Jesus fulfilling this particular part of the law, Leviticus chapter 12. shows him fulfilling this particular part of the law in Luke chapter 2. Circumcised on the eighth day, his mother purified on the fortieth day. With the birth of every Jewish child, there was the reminder, we have a problem, but a solution is coming. With the arrival of Christ, God is saying, here is my child. He is the solution. Scriptures are full of manifold pictures and shadows of the gospel indicating our need for salvation and the fulfillment of that need in Christ. Leviticus 12 uses the occasion of childbirth and child rearing to point out that need. As we set out to do what we've been wired to do, which includes raising children to adulthood, we need to know that every part of that process is going to be touched with sin and so we desperately need the redemption of Christ to touch every part of that process. And it's possible that some of us feel quite acutely even this morning that anxious toil and hardship that was prophesied by the Lord in Genesis chapter 3. Maybe some of us feeling it even right now. Not misery, not the misery of child rearing because we love being parents. We love our kids. It's, it's a huge part of why it's so difficult. L- let, me, let me just encourage you this morning not to overcomplicate things. That's a huge temptation. When, when, when our sin and, and their sin, those, the, those whom we are raising, our sin and their sin, when those things work together to be throwing things off course, the course that we think is best for them or the course that they think is best for them, we tend to panic, right? It seems that Genesis 3 teaches, warns us, look, this is broken, but there's hope. Genesis chapter, I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 12 says the same thing. This is broken, but there's hope. Luke 2, this is broken, hope has arrived. Trust is. In Christ, we as mankind, we have wrought through sin incredible trouble. We have brought incredible trouble upon ourselves. The good news is that God redeems these things through Jesus. So so, so listen to this. Even with all the great books on parenting out there, whether you are parenting newborns or parenting adults you can do no better than to become pros at applying the good news of Jesus Christ to your own life and to the lives of your children. And what that means very simply is repent, seek forgiveness, and trust in Jesus as a way of life. Repent, seek forgiveness, and trust in Christ as a way of life. When you sin against them, repent toward the Lord, seek His forgiveness, trust in Christ. Repent toward your children, seek their forgiveness, and trust in Christ. Be a repenting, forgiveness seeking, and Christ trusting machine. That's the best thing that you can do. And it takes seriously what the Scriptures have been saying to us since the third chapter. This thing is broken. And the only way that it gets fixed is through Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Look at Him. Trust in Him. A parent can do no better than being all Jesus all the time. Be of the mind and and demonstrate it with your life and your words that Jesus really is the only hope of mankind. And so turn to Him for the strength to make wise decisions. Pour over His words so that you exude the mind of Christ. Adore Him in secret. Adore Him in secret. And then adore Him in front of your kids, not just the latter. Demonstrate His worthiness with your choices, with your speech, with your demeanor toward your children and toward others. Continue to plead with Him for their souls. Do all of these things standing firmly on the belief that a God who would give his own son to die for sinners can be trusted to do the right thing with your children. This is a God who can be trusted. I'm going to pray here in a few minutes, and I I would encourage you to, to use the brief moment of silence after that to... Consider before the Lord what He would have you to do. How, how is it that He would have you to apply the gospel in your own life? How we would have you to live the gospel in front of your kids, speak the gospel to your kids. How we would have you to be more faithful in praying for them. What is it that the Lord would have you to do for in, in response to these things? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you for revealing to us in so many different ways our our desperate need for you. We thank you for the forgiveness that is always waiting for us. We thank you that you are such a gracious God. We do pray for your forgiveness Lord as we have failed to to live in light of the gospel failed to apply the gospel to our own thinking our own our own uh, parenting and uh, trajectory in, in life uh, we, we we pray Lord that you would help us to to turn from man-centered ways of thinking about our our children and and how we interact with them as parents we pray that 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 our 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 minds our hearts our lives would would return to this very simple message that what we have broken in our sin you have mended in Christ and while there are undoubtedly hundreds of different situations very complicated situations represented in this room, which could use very nuanced counsel at this moment. I pray that you would help us to believe that at the end of the day, the best thing for every one of us is to turn from sin and trust in Jesus and to live out that message in front of those whom we are tasked with raising and to commend to them that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, worthy of their worship. Please help us to believe these things and to live in light of them. We ask in His name. Amen.